Taking a look at how we remember, and perhaps more importantly, what we are remembering today. And a new survey shows that a lot of Canadians are maybe not forgetting, but maybe not learning in the first place about the history and Canada's involvement in previous wars. Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Anthony Wilson-Smith, the president and CEO of Historica Canada. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, We talk about uh, remembrance, how it's so important to have Remembrance Day. Again, the ceremony is looking very different today. Uh, But this poll that was uh, done for Historica Canada uh, shows something a bit alarming in that the knowledge of our our role, Canada's role, uh, knowledge of the military uh, seems to be dwindling. Yeah, that's the troubling part, Joe. We asked how many people, you know, would wear a poppy, would go to uh, would go to events or find them online, and then we asked about that. So I think no surprise in terms of the first that, you know, in a pandemic, of course, you don't get the same kind of turnout or participation. But this is more worrying. For example, four out of ten respondents said that they feel they probably have a better understanding or comprehension of American military history than they do of our own. And that's just obviously wrong, you know, especially when we have such a such an impressive history as we do behind us. Uh, did it ask people why or did they feel it wasn't it wasn't taught in school or there just aren't enough programs to get the information out there? We spend a lot of time on this stuff, Joe, so we didn't ask it in the survey, but, you know, one of the issues is simply that it's the provinces rather than the federal government that controls what's taught in schools and numbers. So you get, in other words, you get different versions or different focus on history in each of the provinces and territories. You know, there's no kind of national narrative. And in fact, some provinces don't teach Canadian history in high school at all, and some teach it on a very limited basis. And even those who do often don't focus on the wars so much as on other, you know, other domestic events. And do you find, too, that, uh, I don't know if it specifically asked people this, but uh, people might know more about, say, World War I and World War II, but maybe not some of the other key battles and key, uh, key things, parts of history that Canada was uh, a big part of? Well, I mean, you're right about that, but frankly, we could also wish they knew more about First and Second World War as well, the level of engagement, the kind of places we were, you know, the the nature of the people, you know, who, you know, who fought, who went where, who, you know, who excelled the extent of losses. There's not a big, you know, and again, I'm not terribly hung up, frankly, on dates or even geographical locations for, for teaching you things. I think that what you really have to know is, you know, if you're a 14 to 17 year old finding out what interests you in life, hearing firsthand experiences from veterans and having the occasion to talk to them is a really key part of that, which is something we offer in other places, but perhaps we need more of that, you know? Uh, it, it does strike me as we tend to talk about and again World War One and World War Two, and with just a few veterans from World War Two uh, still with us it being the 75th anniversary of the end it does seem like we haven't really replaced that with younger veterans with veterans from Afghanistan from other battles that, that we we draw on them to, to get that information and to to get their experiences. Yeah, they're a tremendous resource, and, you know, we work with about 900 speakers in what we call our memory project, where we put speakers in schools to talk about their experiences. And, you know, in recent years, of course, as we've lost World War II veterans, we've also been going into active service people. So, for example, we had uh, a current service person who's currently on duty with NATO in, uh, in northern Italy who did a Zoom call with a classroom in Ontario recently, and we've had others, you know, who are in active lines, you know, talking to them so the so that students have an opportunity to say, well, what drew you into the military? You know, what are you afraid of? What do you like? What do you not like? You know, what have you, what have you been through? To give that sense that I'm saying is so valuable.
Why is it you think that you found in this poll, and, and the numbers are shifting a bit, but why is it that Canadians feel they know more or, or are more confident saying they do know more about American military history rather than Canadian? Oh, you know, it's, uh, and this is not, I'm not saying it's a bad thing for them, but, you know, Hollywood's given us Saving Private Ryan, wonderful movie, entirely American focused. I mean, there's been war movies almost every year since the war ended. And here we just don't have the budget to do the same. Look, there's appetite. You know, one of the things our organization produces that people are probably generally familiar with is the Heritage Minutes. And, um, you know, we did one last year on a Canadian hero on D-Day that, um, that was seen online more than four and a half million times. We had another one in May this year marking the anniversary of the Canadian role in the liberation of the Netherlands in World War II. That was seen about four and a half million times. So in other words, like the old line, you know, if you build it, they'll come. But it's, you know, you've got, to, you've got to cut through all the noise coming from somewhere else to get the attention of people, and that's hard. Uh, yeah, for sure. And then throw a pandemic in there as well. And I know a lot of people, myself included, I, I love going to the ceremonies and being able to go there and stand there and say thank you and show remembrance, but we just can't do that this year. No, and, you know, you can't replace that virtually, Jill, and you're bang on. I mean, that's what people want to do. You want to be able to go to, up to a veteran and say, you know, or a current serving person and say, thank you so much. Just want to say we're appreciative of what you do for our country. And that opportunity has been, you know, been taken away. And I also, frankly, you know, I feel badly for the Legion this year, which, of course, has done such great work for veterans because poppy sales are way down because, you know, normally we'll see veterans on or people selling on every street corner. And this year, I know in Toronto, I certainly had to go out and actively look looked before, you know, at several stores before I finally found a place that had one. So, you know, so that's a big loss, both symbolically and also, frankly, for their revenue. Uh, when you mentioned as well the, the Heritage Minute, people love those, definitely. Where else can people go, uh, your organization, or what would you suggest as far as people being able to access the information and do their own research? Oh, you know, and look, there's lots of great resources, Jill, but of course I know ours best. So just Google the Memory Project. You'll see videotaped interviews. We have something called Record of Service, which is a free DVD with veterans giving testimony of World War II, the Korean War, other ones. People can book veterans for free through our Memory Project in schools on Zoom calls now or, you know, video otherwise. Again, we have about 550 speakers who are available. So if someone, let's say, in Burnaby wants a veteran who's from Burnaby just to have a local feel, we almost certainly can do that. That if they want somebody who can talk about what it was like on D-Day itself, we still actually have some speakers in their 90s who were there that day and who can speak about it. You know, we're, we're pretty well resourced on that. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking some time today uh, to speak with us. Uh, Anthony, great to talk with you. And we'll talk to you again, I'm sure. Thank you. My pleasure, Joe. Anthony Wilson-Smith is the president and CEO of Historica Canada. And thanks again for making that time for us. Well, you likely remember the murderous shooting spree in Nova Scotia last April. There is some new criticism today from families of the victims and their lawyers after what is being described as an unexpected revelation by the RCMP about what happened early on during that shooting spree. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Brian Hill, an online writer and researcher in the investigative unit with Global News. Brian, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I know there's now a podcast as well that goes through uh, as things happened last April. What is this uh, unexpected revelation, though, by the RCMP? Uh, yeah, so it, as you said, it involves those very, very early minutes in the in the shooting and killing spree. Um, essentially, what we've learned uh, through our investigation is that the um, 
the gunman was on the scene of the the initial killings, uh, so in Portapique, Nova Scotia, for roughly 10 minutes more after police had arrived uh, than, than we were initially told. Um, so the initial um, uh, remarks from police back in, in April after the killings was that um, Gabriel Warbin, the gunman, had left the scene at around 10.35 p.m. Um, and that essentially hasn't changed until now. Uh, and we're being told now that uh, the police believe uh, the gunman left at 10.45. And so it's quite significant in that uh, what it means is that police were on the scene at the same time as the gunman for roughly twice as much time than we initially thought. So before um, the, the, the police, you know, from the, from the initial understanding of these events, uh, police would have been on scene for about nine minutes uh, before the gunman escaped. Uh, now, with this new information, it means police would have been on the scene for almost 20 minutes uh, before the gunman escaped. And so, you know, this is uh, fairly significant in, in the sense that the, the, that initial um, series of crime scenes was concentrated in a very small and remote area of rural Nova Scotia. Um, and, you know, that the, 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 the questions now are, you know, what difference should have or could have the, this time made? I mean, obviously the gunman escaped, but uh, we now just know that there, is, there, there are some differences in, in terms of that timeline. And, and how were you able to figure that out? Or what, was it a mistake that the, the time that was originally put out by the RCMP? Or why is there such that such a discrepancy? So, uh, yeah, those initial comments, the 1035 comments uh, came back in April, on April 24th, well, April 28th, actually. So about uh, nine days after the shooting spree was over and the, and the gunman had been killed. Um, and we... We were told then that an eyewitness had uh, described to police a vehicle driving through a field uh, and that that happened at approximately 10.35 p.m. So police were told that uh, several days or at some point after the shootings had had concluded. Um, We've continued to press police on on a number of issues around their response to to the shootings um, based on a a series of things. So, So... based on our conversations with people who were there that night, um, with uh, eyewitnesses to the account, uh, including uh, the the only person who was shot by the gunman and survived. Um, and and so in in the uh, in developing the podcast that you had mentioned, the thirteen hours and, uh, that we're working thirteen hours inside the Nova Scotia massacre, um, we we've spoken with all these folks, and the things they were telling us just didn't quite align with this timeline that we had originally been told. And so we were probing the police, asking questions of the police about that timeline. And 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 in through doing that, the police informed us that well, the their understanding and their investigation now leads them to believe that this escape happened ten minutes later than they were initially told. Again, based on eyewitness account, um, it's not clear if it's the same eyewitness that they first spoke with who said ten thirty-five, or if it's a different witness. Um, you know, we asked the police why and how, like why they're. Why did their theory change? And we, so we've specifically asked why and when, and, and, and the police haven't answered those questions. But uh, yeah, it, 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 it's quite, um, it is quite a revelation, I think. 
Has it been difficult getting even basic information from RCMP? Uh, it depends on the it depends on the question, I suppose. Uh, in some cases, yes, um, and in in some cases, they've they've provided information. So, I mean, in this case, for example, right, we know this because the police provided this information to us, um, and and you know that's again because of the the information that we have that just things didn't quite add up. So that's why we were asking questions. But yeah, there have been instances where it has been uh, challenging to get information from the police. Um, back on June 4th, uh, the chief superintendent, uh, uh, Chris Leather, um, responsible for the investigation at the time, said he would that the RCMP would provide uh, timely and regular updates um, you know, on the investigation. That was June 4th, and that's the last press conference that the RCMP has held. So, um, you know, that was the last time they faced questions from the media in a public setting, um, you know. Which is quite a while ago when, when, when you really look at it. Is it, is it because, I mean, we're often told that the investigation is continuing and there's no new information or nothing that can be released. Is that what you're being told in this case? Um, yeah, I mean, that's obviously a factor here. Right. So so I think police have an, an investigation to do. They've made it very clear that they're conducting this investigation no differently than if the gunmen were still alive. Um, and they said that they have a responsibility to do that, to find answers for the families, to find answers for the public in general. Um, and so I think that, that there is no question that that does um, play into things here. But there are still unanswered things, like think questions Questions that we just don't know, for example, like the guns that uh, were used. We, we still don't know what type of guns were used in this, in, in this attack. We know one of the guns was that of Constable Heidi Stevenson's, um, one, of, one of the victims who was killed by the gunman. Um, but aside from that, we, you know, there are things we don't know. Um, we, we as a media organization, along with other media organizations, have been um, you know, seeking to have these uh, some of this information released through court documents and and have been uh, there's been an ongoing court process related to that. But, uh, you know, I think there is still a great deal of uncertainty around some key facts that we're trying to, to uh, uncover here. And it sounds like uh, the families of victims have been at least some have been open uh, to talking with you and, and they, too, would like to get those answers. Mm hmm. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the families, uh, victims' families have been uh, extremely generous uh, with their time and, uh, and with their emotions. And this is not easy, obviously, um, to, 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 to talk about this sort of uh, tragedy. And, um, and they've, you know, they've, they've spent a lot of time speaking with us. And I think they do want answers. That's why when, the, when initially when the governments of, of uh, Nova Scotia and the federal government said that they weren't going to move forward with a public inquiry, uh, that was just so ups, like it was it was it was intolerable to the uh, to the families because they feel that they deserve answers. And evidently now the government agrees after tremendous public backlash, including backlash from liberal MPs and senators. Um, so. You know, the, the government has, has backtracked on that initial decision and there will be a public inquiry. And uh, I, I think the families um, would just like to have more answers and they'd like to see more. And, you know, that, the process is still unfolding. 
All right, Brian, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, but really interesting uh, revel- revelations and developments there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Brian Hill is an online writer and researcher with the investigative unit of Global News. And you can check out that story online and their podcast as well. We are joined now by the founder and director of the Chopra Addiction and Wellness Center. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that center is doing to help veterans. Nirmala Raniga is on the line with me now. Thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon and uh Happy Remembrance Day to all, um, a day we all must remember those who gave up their lives to, so that we can feel safe or we are safe, right? Mm-hmm. And, so important. And exactly. And we've been talking about how the ceremonies do look so different today, but people encouraged to remember at home and to still exactly uh, that to pay, pay respects and remember. Uh, Talk a bit, if you can, about what your center is doing as far as supporting veterans. Well, our center focuses on PTSD. As you know, PTSD is a psychological response to intense trauma. And most of the veterans that go into, um, you know, war zones or areas where they're doing peacekeeping, they witness a lot of traumatic events. And when they come back, most of them are never same again. And it impacts their you know, relationships uh, with their family, their friends, their work. Uh, they become distanced, uh, disengaged. And, of course, there's anxiety, depression. All this is part of uh, PTSD. We see um, veterans who have come to our center not able to sleep. They have nightmares, disturbing dreams. And and some of them, you know, as we know, suicide rate is high and there's constant thoughts of suicide. And and this is the reason where um, so much work is needed in trying to get these people to work through their um, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And this it happens through um, a, a commitment on not only the individual but also the center. People who who work with uh, veterans is to be able to do this in a safe setting where they're able to work through their painful uh, emotions and memories. This happens through group therapy, individual therapy. Uh, we as a center believe also in um, some of the healing arts of the East, which includes massage, uh, acupuncture, yoga, meditation, mindfulness-based practice. Often when people have trauma, they either are, um, you know, the depression is all about the past, the memory, and then there's a lot of anxiety and panic attack. So when we bring things like mindfulness, we bring the person here and now where there is no threat, there is no danger. No danger. And trying to in, uh, incorporate or integrate certain coping strategies so when they go back home to their family and the loved ones, they can have a life outside of the trauma. This is actually a process. It's a, it's a healing process. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes a, a timeline for the person to do this therapeutic work. And it's a process. And we've seen veterans who have come to our center have have been able to integrate some of these tools and, and walk through them. Like this morning, I, I called some of our veterans just to speak to them who've been to our center. And it was just so nice to hear them feeling that they have um, been able to integrate some of these tools into their lives so that they can have a, a life outside of that pain.
Have you noticed in in the past couple of decades that the center has been operating that things have changed? Because a lot of family members talk about the fact when when veterans come home, they're often quite quiet. They don't want to talk about what they've witnessed or what they've experienced. Have you noticed that changing? Yes, absolutely, and it's because of how we have shifted as a community. As uh, in the past, a lot of things were about shame about um, uh, not wanting to talk about it. These days we see more people are open to sharing and um, uh, willing to talk about. And when more people talk about the experience and heal, this gives hope to others that we can heal. Now there's something else you may not know or other people may know we call moral injury or moral trauma. And this really is um, about the veterans that, that do go Um, You know, they're serving our country, they're doing a duty, but it may not be uh, aligned with their own personal beliefs or or, um, values. It's like killing somebody and then coming back home and not being able to talk about it because you just didn't want, you had to do it because you did it for the country, but it didn't align with your own values. And so people, generally some of the veterans live with this guilt and shame that now I've come back, if people find out, they're going to judge me. I'm a horrible person. So there is something which is the moral injury that these veterans actually need to uh, be able to walk on in a safe setting where they are not judged because they were doing a duty so we could be safe, right? Mm -hmm. A compassion, no judgment is very important, especially with family and, and friends. Uh, of course, we know veterans really cannot disclose or talk about very specific details, and uh, so this is where how do you how do you support uh, these people in such a way that they can heal from their pain? And yes, you're right. Absolutely, more people are sharing, and and which is great. That allows it. It makes the people who are providing therapy and support their job a little bit easier to support them in this. Uh, um, a setting to get them to release the emotional pain. I know that Veterans Affairs Canada has announced as well recently the $20 million in new funding to help veterans, especially veterans and organizations that have also been hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. How much of a change do you think that will make? I think this gives more hope and easier access to those who are struggling with depression, anxiety and PTSD that more services will be um, available so they don't have to go through all sorts of hoops. Like, for example, um, some of the veterans that had come to our facility, we do have a provider number now, but in the past, the the referring uh, um, psychiatrist or um, the, the physician had to get a special approval through the minister's office to to send these people. And uh, our facility is a small facility, so it's a very safe place where we focus on um, working with trauma. And some of the the, the uh, veterans may or may not want to go to facilities which are large, which are big. And um, so safety is important for healing work. And, uh, you know, just coming to this fact that this additional funding, funding will give tremendous hope to those who haven't been able to access treatment. All right. Well, it uh, is uh, great news that the funding is there, the support is there for people uh, that need that, uh, for the veterans that need that. Uh, Nirmala, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us. 
No, thanks for having me. And, you know, um, again, thanks to all those who have helped us uh, in this way. Thank you. All right. Uh, Nirmala Raniga is the founder and director of the Chopra Addiction and Wellness Center, and that center is based in Squamish, B.C. Well, when we talk about the cases of COVID-19, we often talk about the Fraser Health Authority, about Vancouver Coastal Health, and we think about Vancouver and Whistler when we look at the numbers and why those additional restrictions were brought in last Saturday for that two-week period. But we're also learning that a number of businesses in Whistler have had to temporarily close and in some cases out of an abundance of caution shut their doors after COVID-19 exposures. So we wanted to check in and see what is happening in Whistler and Jack Crompton the mayor of Whistler is with us now to talk more about that. Mayor Crompton thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Joe. Uh, I know when we've talked to you in the past, uh, the, you weren't able to break down the numbers or we weren't given that information on the specific numbers for Whistler. Do you have a better idea now, though, with businesses and exposures, uh, how prevalent it is in Whistler? Well, it's fair to say uh, COVID-19 is across the province and it is here as it has been in the past. And we're looking to take these two weeks uh, as they're given to us by Dr. Henry to really refocus on our on our safety plans and ensure that we're doing the things that we need to be to to get open and stay open and welcome people um, up here this this year if if we can. Uh, I know a number of businesses have temporarily closed. Do you know how many? Uh, I mean, the businesses have closed on and off. Um, we I think there are. Two or three that I know of now that are in short pauses um, to take the direction they're getting from Vancouver Coastal Health and, um, and and do the work they need to do to ensure that they're operating in a safe fashion. And how confident are you that after this two-week pause as far as social gatherings and people being asked to really stick to their uh, immediate family, to their very safe, uh, the people in their bubble, how confident are you that a place like Whistler that, that does have a lot of tourists, that does have a lot of people living in roommate situations, uh, will be able to bend that curve and reopen? We've done it before. We can do it again. Um, I, I will say that this is um, not where any of us wanted to be. We wanted to be past this. Um, we wanted to be in a different place uh, at this point. Um, and I think we need to remain nimble and attentive to the direction that we're getting from the public health uh, officials who are giving us the guidance that they are. So uh, I guess I'd say there are no guarantees what will happen uh, a week and a half from now, but we will be ready to respond accordingly. Uh, do you think Whistler will still open on schedule, the, the mountain? I think you'd want, I, I'll let Whistler Blackcomb speak for Whistler Blackcomb, um, but certainly we've been focused as a community on being prepared to deliver uh, safe tourism since the beginning of this pandemic, and we continue to learn how to, to do that in, in a way that will allow us to deliver the kind of experiences that, that we've become known for offering and doing so in a safe way. I, I don't think we're at a point where we can say we're finished learning. And if we ever get there, I think we're in a dangerous spot. So our goal is to continue to learn, continue to improve, and continue to stay connected to Dr. Henry, to Vancouver Coastal Health, and the professionals that have the tools uh, to give us the great guidance that they've been giving us at this point.
Uh, I know that uh, the Cornucopia Festival, which has been a very uh, popular festival, uh, it was planning to go ahead on a much smaller scale. Uh, From what I understand, it's now been postponed uh, as we uh, continue these two weeks uh, of modified uh, restrictions. Uh, Are are you concerned, though, that that people will get the message or people will be hesitant? Like you said, you've you've been learning and adapting and changing with these different protocols. Uh, Is there a concern with the dependency now being on local tourists that people will be hesitant to come? Well, I, I hope they'll take the direction to not come uh, until November 24th. That is the direction that we're receiving from um, public health, is that we are not traveling uh, during this this break. But I think one of the things that's happened for us has been that there th- this has been an opportunity to really connect back to the Lower Mainland. Vancouver built this town, and um, it's been such a joy to have the lower mainland in our community this year. So there's been benefits. Again, this is not where any of us wanted to be. Um, And so we need to take the actions that are prescribed. I heard someone say today, the problem with exponential growth is that it's exponential. (laughs) And so we need to do what we have been instructed so that we can flatten the curve again. Right. And and sorry, I, I wasn't trying to, to suggest that people should be traveling now during uh, the the recommendation of not traveling. But but mm-hmm. once we get hopefully to the other side of, of this two week period, uh, how, how are our businesses able to deal with reduced capacity and with knowing that they won't be able to open up 100 percent? Are they are they bracing for that and still trying to make the best of, of what is no- normally a very busy season? Mm-hmm. So I've been amazed by the businesses in this community and, and how they've risen to the challenge. Um, if you come into a lot of the restaurants in our community now, you'll see the safety precautions that have been put in place. And they are no small task and they are not inexpensive. Um, our, our community has risen to that challenge. If you walk into a hotel, people are taking your temperature. You're being asked to wear a mask. We are asking people to wear a mask. Uh, if they are in the village and we're requiring it in municipal facilities. So it has not been at a small cost uh, financially or energy uh, wise, but the community has risen to the challenge and it's, we're at, it's been going on so long. It's, it's tiring. It's challenging. It's hard on the soul, I guess, but uh, I've been really impressed with uh, our community's ability to rise to it. And I know we've talked about this in the past as well, but one of the issues and one of the the main reasons that we're doing this two weeks of restrictions is not that we are under any um, idea that this is going to wipe the virus out, but it's to give hospitals that break to make sure that as we continue living with this virus, hospitals aren't overwhelmed. Uh, in Whistler, uh, I, I, there's the clinic and there are, are, are there enough medical places or medical staff to, to deal with the numbers? Yeah, we're well set up. We're well resourced by Vancouver Coastal Health. There are, I mean, like I said, there people are are um, are tired of this, but I I'm, I've been impressed with the ability of our local clinic to deal with it. I think that we are. Um, uh, I would say that this break is good. I think it allows us to 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 join the rest of the province in getting a handle on it, and I think our 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 health officials are pleased for it.
And are you getting the impression to, uh, and I kind of touched on this, but I know there there is certainly a young demographic in Whistler or younger uh, demographic as far as people who are employees and work in uh, the resort town. Uh, a lot of people have roommates. Uh, th- those people, that would become your, your immediate family in a, in a pandemic and become your safe number. Uh, but are people adapting to that in knowing that, especially during this two-week period, uh, to stay with those groups and don't be socializing with, with others that, that aren't under... Uh, whatever whatever really defines your family where you are. Yeah, and I think that that's one of my personal goals is to ensure that um, those, those shared housing situations have the information they need to make the right decisions. The message is stay with your household, it, whether that's a roommate or uh, uh, your children, stay with that group of people and don't spread out beyond them. Uh, a lot of the shared housing information that's out there has been specific to um, employee accommodation that's officially connected to the local business. Uh, One of the goals that I have is getting that information into the hands of people who aren't housed directly in um, uh, business-owned accommodations, but are um, uh, shared living with other people. Um, And so, yeah, I, I believe that the message has got out around this province that you need to stay with your your um your community now it's it's just uh the task of doing it stay with the people who with whom you live don't expand beyond that and um when there is different direction being provided then you'll be able to grow that back to maybe your safe sex as as we've learned about in the past but right now it's not a time for spending time beyond your bubble All right. And just one final question, because there are a lot of people as well that would still technically be within the health region that maybe have a condo or have a second residence in Whistler. What about people who might be traveling there for the weekends and and thinking, well, I'll take everything with me. I'm not going to be exposed to anybody and are still thinking about traveling. I think they should read Dr. Henry's message. There was a tweet from the province of British Columbia today talking to Fraser Health Authority and, and, and Vancouver Coastal Health Authority to stay in your community, stay in your home. Don't travel within or into or out of. Stay home, stay home, stay home. Please stay home. Let's, uh, let's really use these two weeks to accomplish the task that's set out for us. All right. Mayor Crompton, thanks so much for your time today. I always appreciate having you on the program. It's a pleasure, Jill. Have a great day. Okay, you too. That is Jack Crompton. He is the mayor of Whistler. Well, a lot of people are wearing masks. It's now pretty commonplace if you are out, maybe not outdoors as much, but if you are out grocery shopping, if you are on transit where there is a mask policy, if you are in places where you can't physically distance from others, that has been the recommendation from our provincial health officers to put on that mask. But it is not an order. It is not mandatory. There are not penalties if you are in any of these places and not wearing a mask. And my next guest would like that to change at least for the Lower Mainland. And there is a petition. It's already received almost 4,200 signatures. It has a goal of 5,000 to make masks mandatory in Greater Vancouver. And joining me to talk more about this is Scott Lear, Pfizer Heart and Stroke Foundation Chair in Cardiovascular Prevention Research at St. Paul's Hospital. Thanks so much for being with us, for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, the petition's getting a lot of signatures. What exactly are you calling for here? 
So what I'm calling for is to make uh, masks mandatory in all indoor public spaces. And this would be consistent with uh, basically every other major city in Canada that currently has a mask mandate. And in the write-up in the, the petition itself, which is at change.org, if people want to check it out, uh, singles out or makes mention of the fact that Surrey and Vancouver are the only major Canadian cities currently without a mask mandate. Yeah, and that's that's correct. Just recently, the province of Saskatchewan put in mandate for many of their cities. Um, Alberta doesn't have a provincial mandate, but both Calgary and Edmonton do have mandates for all public indoor spaces. And then the only other province with no mandate is Prince Edward Island, and I don't believe they have any active cases, so that kind of makes sense there. But here we're seeing, as everybody knows, rising cases, rising hospitalizations, and rising death rates as well. And a mask mandate can get more people using masks and reduce cases and maybe, maybe reduce the the need for uh, restrictions in in the long term. And what would a mandate look like as far as would there be penalties, do you think, or how do you, how would that play out? Well, the, the mandate that's on uh, public transit right now is a pretty good model in that it is a mandate. It's not actively enforced. And TransLink says back in August they had about 92% compliance. So you're not going to get everybody complying with it, but you're going to get most people. And that compliance uh, went up double in, from what they estimated before the mask mandate. In. And most people will will adhere to it, just like uh, we have a, a lot of laws that aren't constantly enforced. Well, most people will abide by what's expected. And, and the other thing the mask mandates do is they change social norms. And, and a good example of that is uh, going back to when um, smoking in public places was allowed. And and over different policies and changes that now it's just not socially acceptable to go indoors somewhere and start smoking. Uh, our health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, our health minister, Adrian Dix, have both been asked this question numerous times, uh, and they have stuck to the position that they don't feel it's necessary, that people will buy into wearing masks when you're indoors, when you're in places where you can't distance from people. And I know in the beginning saying that they didn't want people to get a false sense of security, thinking that the mask was going to protect them 100% during this pandemic. Uh, how do you respond to their reluctance to do this? Well, the, the reluctance honestly doesn't follow the science. We know now, we know now a lot more than we did six months ago. And we're starting to see each week some sort of study or modeling that demonstrates that areas that did put in mask mandates have lower cases. They may end up with lower hospitalization and lower death rates. It's not a cure all. It's meant to augment a lot of the great policies that we already have in place that Dr. Henry and uh, Minister Dix have supported, but people sometimes need that that little push, and voluntary measures will only take us so far. That's that's why we have laws on seatbelt use. That's why going back to smoking, we have a law that says you can't smoke indoors in a public place. And I would argue that exposure to uh, infected person is probably going to be more immediately damaging to an individual than exposure to somebody smoking.
A lot of businesses have gone ahead and put in their mandatory mask policies. It's not rare. It's not uh, uncommon now to go to a smaller store, uh, restaurant in some cases, although then you take it off when you're at the table. But a lot of a lot of places do have the signs on their doors now saying masks mandatory to come in. Uh, Do you think a, a policy that covers the region, does it take the pressure off business owners, individual business owners who might encounter people who are angry by this? Oh, most definitely. And um, you're correct. A lot of businesses, a lot of small businesses um, have put this in restaurants and so forth. But there's tension that these sometimes the employees face, the, the businesses face with people maybe pushing back against that because they know it's it's just kind of at the whim of the owner. And then there can be challenges, too, with uh with essential services like grocery stores, that there aren't grocery, uh, none of the major chains. Um, some of them still, you're allowed to go in shopping without a mask. And so that if that if the grocery store owner put in a mandate there, that would create a lot of tension. But if it's supported by the, our governments and health leaders, that will alleviate that potential tension. And what also have to consider is that by not putting in a mandate, it sends its own message that saying that, well, masks are good, but maybe they're not, they're not needed. For, for instance, like um, um, there's a law around mass gatherings. Um, so we have to think about the message that not having a mandate sends as well as what message a mandate would send. Uh, do you think part of it, too, is the, the changing of the theory? And I get that we're learning more about this virus and things today are different than they were in March or April or May. Uh, but we have gone from not wearing a mask. Uh, and I think we can agree or we all know that, that that had to do with supply and we didn't want there to be a huge run on medical masks to wear a mask if you can, to now wear a mask specifically in closed spaces if you can. Uh, our Canadian Canada's health officer, uh, Dr. Teresa Tam, recently came out saying we now think a three-layer mask is the best mask to wear when you're wearing one. It does seem like the, the, the information is changing, which could probably be leading to some confusion as well. Yeah, the information is changing. Uh, Dr. Tam, I think, has done a, a good job of, you know, just like you have mentioned in, in acknowledging that things are changing as we go. So our policies have, have to change as the knowledge um, that we get builds. And some things we've done may turn out that maybe they weren't the best choices and other things were spot on choices. And the mask one is one that we've, we've learned. And it's not just to protect us if we can't physically distance. So we should still also be physically distancing, but because of what we're learning about how the virus might spread and transmission might occur in enclosed spaces, there are situations that we know where infections have spread um, even when people have been physically distanced based on the ventilation or lack of ventilation in the room. So a mask can also augment what the protection of being two meters away from somebody can also provide. Uh, How long will people then have an opportunity to sign this petition and then what will you do with it? Well, at at present, just keeping going. Um, I'm continuing to try to solicit um, support for the petition. I will also look to uh, bring it to the awareness of the 
local city councils because even if there is reluctance at the provincial level, um, cities can also do some sort of mandates, at least in their own buildings. And the city of Richmond has a mask mandate in their uh, buildings, the same with the city of Delta. But the biggest ones, like Vancouver and Surrey, uh, currently don't. And that's also where we're finding some of these bigger outbreaks happening. So if people are interested in signing, they can go to change.org. The easiest way is to search under my name, Scott Lear, L-E-A-R, and um, then sign the petition and, and feel free to share it as well. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for making time for us. Okay. Thanks a lot, Joe. That is Scott Lear, Pfizer Heart and Stroke Foundation Chair in Cardiovascular Prevention Research at St. Paul's Hospital.